Welcome to Grow Your Influence, leadership conversations for business owners and managers. Whether you own a business and have a team, or leadership is part of your role, welcome, you're exactly where you need to be. Join co-hosts Juliet Robinson and Christy Lee Billet for their regular conversations on all things leadership. No corporate jargon, no textbook ideologies, just real life experience unpacked in a relaxed way to help you be your best boss and lead your team with confidence, clarity, and control. This is Grow Your Influence. Let's dive in. Hey there, it's Christy Lee here. Welcome to this episode of the Grow Your Influence podcast. In today's episode of the podcast, we're bringing you another interview with an expert guest who we're really, really lucky to have spoken to here on the podcast. Now, if you've been joining in our last couple of episodes, you'll know that Juliet and I have been tackling some very interesting topics around workplace dynamics, particularly around working with people who have different values and beliefs to our own and how we can navigate that uh, in the most um, I guess, inclusive way possible. And that's why I was so excited to be able to bring you this interview with Nick Mills that I'm about to share with you. Now, Nick is an experienced facilitator, coach, and leadership expert. He has bachelor's and master's degrees in adult education. He also has an advanced diploma in the neuroscience of leadership as well as a whole stack of other qualifications. He's incredibly well um, educated and a big studier. And Nick currently is part-time also with the University of Tasmania, where he is completing his PhD on how Australian companies can be more inclusive and welcoming spaces. He has a particular focus topic as part of his studies, which we do get into into this interview particularly with his background in the finance and professional services sectors. And he's motivated to help leaders have more meaningful interactions and more effective and sensitive conversations with team members across all areas of their organisation. Now, we will get Nick back on the podcast once he has completed his PhD to learn even more about that. But I really hope you enjoy today's conversation with Nick, where he shares what he's learned along the way with his PhD and, of course, through all of his years of experience and how we as Australian businesses can be more truly inclusive and welcoming places. So let's welcome Nick to the podcast. Nick Mills, I am so excited to be having this conversation with you today. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, I've uh, given our listeners a um, formal introduction for you, your official bio, but I always think it's better to hear directly um, from our um, special guests about what they do, why they do what they do, and a little bit about, about their background. So do you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your background and what you're doing at the moment? Sure. Thank you. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to come on and talk this afternoon. It's um, I think this topic is really important and very close to my heart. And so, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. Um, so I'm a self-employed consultant, coach, facilitator, trainer. I work in the corporate space and have done for about 14 years. Um, I mainly train in things like leadership and sales across, you know, small and large organizations across pretty much every industry sector. And I've been doing that since I was made redundant from my last full-time job, which is in a finance company. And I was made redundant during the GFC. And I had worked in the finance industry, uh, in the travel industry for many, many years in sort of operations, management, sales, and, and training uh, roles across sort of 20, 20 years or so. So this is like a, a really logical trans, uh, transfer for me. Mm. 
as well as that, I'm a bit of an education junkie and um, I keep going back to university and doing various things. And about six years ago, I went part-time in my business and I went back to university as a part-time grad student to complete my PhD, which I'm hopefully going to be hitting submit by the end of this year if I'm, if I'm still focused. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're diligent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, my subject area is essentially looking at the experience of people from marginalised backgrounds who work in finance industries, um, banks, law firms, professional services companies like your big four consulting companies, et cetera. These companies have always scored incredibly well in things like diversity and inclusion indexes, not just in Australia, but globally. In fact, some of the well-known brands that we all know in Australia in terms of the big four banks, the big big the big four um, consulting companies like, you know, your Deloitte and EY, et cetera, as well as your, your top 10 law firms, all often do really, really well in those things. And in part, that's because they go on the front foot and they were really well-funded in terms of their mm. diversity and inclusion efforts. But I kind of wanted to dig into that and have a look at, well, what were the real stories like for people working, that's working in those industries? You know, what, what's it like for me working in my role as an accountant or a lawyer? or you know, a manager of a, you know, a business advisory service team within one of those companies. You know, if I'm from somebody from who identifies as you know, gay or bisexual or, or queer or trans or whatever, what's my experience like on a day-to-day -day basis? Because as most of us know, when we talk about, when we you know, go to barbecues and dinner parties and people say what to do for a living and we talk about our company or the organization or who we work for, and we start describing it, you know, the goods and the, the pros and the cons, etc. What we're actually talking about is the culture of the organisation, mm. and most of the time when we're talking about that, we're actually talking about a pretty small group of people, and usually that's our immediate team and our immediate manager, and the people that we interact with on them mostly. Mm. And therefore, we have a series of words and phrases and things to describe this culture. But the culture of an organisation is actually us, because organisations are essentially made up of people. It doesn't matter what we actually do. So, yeah, I kind of wanted to sort of dig in underneath and find out you know, what people's actual experiences there. Mm. I think it's really fascinating. And I must say, I applaud you for going back to studies because the thought to me of returning to uni some, I don't know, 20 years after finishing my master's makes me want to cry. <laughs> and um, whilst I love the idea of doing some research, I just don't think I have it in me to go back to do uh, a PhD kind of study. So I applaud you for that tenacity and, and that grit to get through that because I don't think it's a, an easy feat at all. Oh, there's been plenty of tears. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I think what you're looking into is actually really interesting because it, and it's interesting that you point out that a lot of the really big firms, the big fours, um, a lot of the firms that do rate well, if you were to look at a survey of whether it's diversity and inclusion or a whole range of other workplace metrics, they do well because, as you pointed out, they're well-funded. It's not hard for them to participate in every possible thing, event, initiative under the sun. But does that actually mean that the people working in those workplaces feel included? Feel, feel safe psychologically, feel like they belong. And it's interesting to look at what's happening on the ground because I work mainly with small businesses and I always say to them, there's no point having a policy for a policy's sake or a document for a document's sake. It's got to actually do something and it's got to be reflected in our behaviour in the workplace. Did you find that there was a difference between perhaps what was on paper and what was put in place in terms of initiative uh, was different to what was happening actually on the ground with the people you spoke to? 
So that's a good question. Um, and the short answer is yes, mm. but the answer is much more complex than that because yeah. I not only do I look at some of the bigger well-known well organisations, I also look for things like, you know, small law firms in even in things like places like regional Queensland. Mm. And I also looked at finance startups where, you know, you don't have, and some of, them, some of the ones that I interviewed, they didn't even have HR people yet, even though they had 50 or 100 staff or whatever. Mm. Some of the things they were growing so quickly and that hadn't been their focus yet. The short answer is generally for small organisations, it's a little bit more of the Wild West. Mm. You know, the legislation is the same across all organisations. Uh, for small organisations, there isn't necessarily the resources or the manpower to be able to carry that out. Mm. And if you did have an issue with, you know, your manager or somebody in your team or somebody in another team, often there isn't that kind of, you know, one or two or three people removal that you might have in a much larger, larger organisation. Or you don't, you simply don't have a HR business partner to go and talk to in confidence. Mm. And in a small business too, even if you do have access to HR, or there is someone wearing the HR hat, which often necessarily isn't a HR person, they're also friendly with everyone else in the business. So I think there is also a little reluctance necessarily that that might be a trusted and independent or um, confidential space to go when you know that they're having lunch with the person you've got an issue with or, you know, those types of things tend to happen. So it is more concentrated in small business, isn't it? In one organisation, one person I interviewed, the CEO, he had, this guy had a good relationship with the CEO, but the CEO's sister was the part-time HR business partner and advisor. Um, and so he had had some stuff and some things said to him. And he was really reluctant to go to either of those people to mm. talk about you know, what had been said to him in the workplace. And this is a 52-year-old, intelligent, experienced, very articulate man who's got a lot of experience working at big companies and or government. It suddenly come to a startup and just gone. <laughs> yeah, because the structures aren't there. Yeah, especially if these people are coming out of corporate where there's been all the structure in the world, it must feel like they're quite alone in many ways in terms of having access to processes and people to speak to. It's true, but that isn't to give big corporates and big organisations that do have those processes and systems in place a free pass. Mm. Because at the end of the day, we can do everything we want for things like we can do a big celebration of International Women's Day. We can do Black History Month. You know, we can do Pride Month in June. We can do all of these different events that happen during the year. But if we then take down the library and the banner bannering for this one and put it up for the next thing without actually necessarily making people who fit into those categories feel like they actually belong there and that they mm. can actually have a good conversation with their manager, then... Yeah, none of those things matter, I think, at the end of the day. What's happening actually on the ground where it matters is reflected. Most definitely. And what I will say is that generally, like, 100% hands down, the experience is it is getting better and a lot better. Mm. And particularly the younger people that are coming through that I interviewed, I think the youngest person I interviewed was about 30 and I had three or four or five people in their 30s. Mm. Their experience was completely different to people I interviewed in their 50s and early 60s because a lot of that stuff has been, the issues are in 2020 or 21 or 22 are simply different to what they were 10, 15 or 20 or 30 years ago. Yes. Um, so there absolutely is progress on, on mm. all fronts. 
that's good. <laughs> that gives us all some some hope. And I'm wondering as well whether the people that you interviewed that were a little older and have been in the workplace a little longer may have had different experiences for a couple of reasons. One, because they were in the workplace 20, 30 years ago when things were different, but also because possibly those people are in much more senior roles now. And I wonder whether as we rise through the ranks, um, we feel that things need to be different or we're treated differently or the people we're dealing with day to day are different and their views might be different. Did you experience, did you see any of that in your research? <laughs> yeah. Um, so my research uh, was people who work in leadership roles mm -hmm. have, have managed a team of people for at least two years. And there were certain right. criteria in terms of the level that they had and the number of people that they had managed simply so that I had a reasonably representative cohort yeah, right. focus on the experience of leaders. Um, in terms of your question there, in terms of people rising through the ranks and becoming more senior, for some people, the experience was absolutely liberating and that they could affect change for the next generation coming through and mentor and create pathways and create environments where people from all, all kinds of persuasions can come to work and feel included and also be the be their authentic self and kind of get, get the job done. Mm. Really, that's what we're here to do in business. Yeah. There was also this sort of much smaller cohort of, of senior uh, leaders, and this was mainly older men and 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 one woman, one woman in particular that I interviewed that suddenly found themselves going back into the closet, for, for want of a better term, as they mm. became senior, simply because... At a junior level, you know, they're much closer to the front line. You know, there's probably a little bit more social stuff and there's probably, the stakes are different, but, you know, once they sort of get to that exact level or C-suite, all of a sudden it's about going to business class flights to Europe and golf days with, you know, clients and stuff. And there's a different expectation. And sometimes they've found that organisations or really senior people in organisations were unwittingly creating some, I guess, I guess you could call them discriminatory mm. uh, uh, boundaries, but certainly they weren't as comfortable. And I, I think it's interesting, and I wonder whether there is in some organisations at least still this kind of mould about what the C-suite needs to look like. And I, I, I sort of think back to women rising through senior roles in their 80s when they felt they had to dress in a certain way in suits, for example, become particularly masculine to fit the mould that was seen to be the seat. And I wonder whether there hasn't been a whole lot of shift maybe in the C-suite mould. In some organisations, hasn't been a whole lot of shift and there is still this either subconscious or very conscious, you know, feeling of a need to fit that mould um, that, that people might experience, which is, which is interesting and I don't see so much of that because I do work with smaller businesses, but I do find that really fascinating that there's still that potential of, that we've got that issue at, at highest levels because when I talk to people about creating culture in businesses and how we want people to behave and all of these things, I'm talking about things coming from the top down and, and yet as it seems to be working the reverse in some of the things you've seen, which is really fascinating. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you've ever had to work harder than your co-workers to, to prove yourself and, and to be considered just as good? Interesting question, actually. <laughs> I, I don't know that I've had, and, and, and that's coming from, I guess, a place of being very fortunate and very privileged, that I haven't had that experience, but I purposefully did not spend a lot of time in very large organisations and, and possibly because 
I, I could see that that would be uh, something that I may have come, come across. I certainly did work with a very large, you know, banking and finance, actually, um, organisation when I was studying at uni. And I absolutely saw that across. I was really observing a lot working in that organisation. I was studying psychology, so that was a nice little tie-in. But I absolutely saw definitely elements of that in that workplace. Um, But I think that's an experience a lot of people have, isn't it, that they have to, or they feel as, as though they have to work a whole lot harder than others to get noticed, to get promotions, um, was that challenges that you've come, you've seen or you've come across either in your consulting work or your research? And look, every single person as they're going through or as they're going through their career at some stage has to put in the hard yards and works really hard and, and does that thing where you want to impress the boss and you want to demonstrate that you have that charisma or that leadership potential to go to the next level. So everybody has to do it. Yep. What I'm saying is that there are some people who feel like they have to work harder and have more to prove and and also can't make as many mistakes because they won't be uh, judged in a similar way than some other people in the workplace. Mm. Yeah, and I want want to circle back to this a little later and dig into it a little further. I think this has a really interesting um, sort uh, sort of crossover when it comes to when we hire based on values, which is something I do encourage people to do because we want people that share values, otherwise we do have some conflict. But also in doing that, we only hire people often that are like us and then if they're, and then I wonder whether that creates this issue with people who aren't like us, so to speak, and that creates that need for them to act in a certain way. I mean, I'm thinking of an accounting firm right now who they're not a big accounting firm, but they hire people who are just like them and you could look at their staff photo list like to that level go, yep, they all work at this place because they're almost molds of each other. And that there's a whole lot of complexities that we won't dive into today in doing that, but it also um, just demonstrates that there can be some limitations when that's the only criteria that we're using. So there's a couple of things that are worth digging into in that. Um, observation that you've just made. Um, first up, from a recruiting perspective, um, this has been something that has been a recruiting, I guess, mm. sticking point issue, if you want to call it, for you know, ever since we've recruited people in that mm. we make recruiting and hiring decisions, we instantly connect with a candidate, particularly if we are hiring somebody that you know will be working for us and our team. I'm, I'm the direct manager involved in the hiring process. There is an unconscious bias that happens there when we meet people that have a similar personality and working style to us because instantaneously we click with them so we feel better about that hire. But actually, what we've learned from neuroscience research and from things like you know, com- you know, confirmation bias is that we're actually confirming that we personally are good hires ourselves. Because if I find <laughs> that person over there that's like me in terms of how that and it does, you know, how that person looks or their gender or their ethnicity. Yeah background that's less to do with it but more if I hire that person over there that acts and behaves like me and you know I think that I'm a good worker and I think that I have a good work ethic then I am essentially confirming that mm. and that's not necessarily problematic as such but if we if everybody's repeating that across the company then we probably need to take a broader look at that to think about well are we necessarily just cloning mm. a whole bunch of people which may cause some issues from us for us down the track in terms of 
you know, less creativity, less innovation, you know, less of a candidate pool, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Um, but I think the second point to jump into there is that uh, how, I think you made a comment about everybody looking the same. I've seen that with other com with companies that I've worked with, yeah. Yeah. Well, very similar, you know, similar age, similar ethnicity, you know, yeah. you know, very similar characteristics across the board. Yeah. Um, and look, there's a difference between, you know, having people from diverse backgrounds uh, and actually those people working in your organisation feeling like they belong there. Mm. And I think if we, if, we begin, if we begin to get into the conversation about inclusion, mm. that's sort of one of the first major, major things that we need to talk about because, you know, you can, every single person can look around their organisation and think about, oh, yeah, but we hired that woman over there. She works in accounts. And what about that woman that we had, blah, 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 who did this role? She was great. People can always, can always point to outliers yeah. um, as an example without yep. necessarily taking a look across the organisation going, do we have a true diverse representation of our local community? You know, if that's important, if it's a regional place. Yes. Or and, but secondly, does everybody feel like they've got a seat at the table? Do they all feel like they can yeah. speak up? Yep. And do they feel like they belong here? And that's what's important, I think. And you and I have spoken about the fundamental of that sense of belonging, um, being around this concept of psychological safety, which I talk about, you know, quite a bit, I guess, in terms of the work I do. Um, but really, for me, psychological safety at work is a feeling that I belong, that my contribution is valued, that I can speak up without fear, that I can own up to my mistakes, that I can try new things, that I can be innovative, I can suggest ideas. I don't know that that's a definition, but that's kind of how I uh, sort of encapsulate psychological safety at work. Do you, is that how you describe it or do you have a definition that you sort of refer to or what are your thoughts on psychological safety? Uh, I think, no, I think you've actually given a pretty bloody good definition of it there. Um, I think some good things to think about in terms of whether you've got a psychologically safe workplace is, okay, what happened to me last time I stuffed up and made a major mistake? Yeah. Um, you know, do is it a culture where people hide the states or do people openly just go, you know what, we stuffed up or I stuffed up and then we talk about it, we learn from it and we move on. Mm. Amy Edmondson, who is probably the most famous uh, author and speaker and about psychological safety, talks about the fact that in her original research on hospitals, nurses in hospitals in America, hospitals that reported higher mistakes and incidences actually had better team cultures. And she was looking at team culture within nursing professions as in her original research. Mm. And she thought the results would be the opposite. She thought that better cultures would produce fewer mistakes. But the bottom line was that, that the better culture teams actually reported more errors yes. and reported more mistakes. Yeah. And so... It's not that they were making more mistakes. They were just being honest about making them. We don't learn mm. unless we you know, have that opportunity to talk about and make mistakes and also have a conversation about that and you know I, I will think back to the last time that I stuffed up and how my boss gave me feedback about yep. that in terms of how I approach the next idea that I have or mm. the project that I'm involved in and so you know I can either 
be more collaborative, I can be more innovative, I can make better decisions, or I can retreat into threat mode and I can protect myself. Yeah. And therefore, the company's not getting the best out of it. So there's a whole bunch yes. of business outcomes that we can link to psychological safety. Mm. Yeah, and I think it, and sometimes it's the smallest things too. Like I'm thinking about businesses that I've worked with and the staff will say to me, I always get told when I do the wrong thing, but I never, ever get a thank you or that was great. And that does so much damage to a culture, but I do see it sort of come up a lot. And the other element of psychological safety and belongingness and, and those elements, and I've been talking about this topic a lot, it feels like lately, is trust. Do you trust your people? Because if you don't, they're not going to trust you. And that's just a, it's a spiral that you don't want to start going down. But I feel like this issue of trust seems to pop up a lot. And we've really got to build that trust because that's where people will feel safe. Yeah. Well, trust is a feeling. <laughs> and, uh, yes. you know, I can't simply say, trust me. And, you know, you will. Yeah. Right. Trust is, I mean, if we think back to, you know, one of the classic management authors that probably most of your listeners will know of, which is Stephen Covey, mm. he talks about that bank account of trust, you know, it's all our actions and our behaviours, we either put money and deposits into it, or we take money out based yep. on our actions and our behaviours. And you know, trust, accountability, empowerment, all those things are so intimately linked to psychological safety. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so when we're talking about workplace inclusivity what we're really talking about is having a workplace where everyone feels like they belong is that right is that your perspective on things yeah absolutely well absolutely that's utopia and yes. it's, what you want to, it's what you want to get to um different people are gonna are gonna reach that at different times and you know, if I think back to, you know, the, the, the work, the, the bread and butter work that I do every day, which is leadership training and coaching, it's still coming back to the basics every day. It's listening, listening skills and questioning skills of leaders. It's how do you artfully and respectfully and in a good way give constructive feedback that lands versus coming across as personal criticism. How often are you having robust conversations with your team and creating an environment where we all actually do speak up so that we all you know, have that positive conflict versus, you know, trying to look at all conflicts as being bad. Mm. Are you familiar with um, the work of, you know, Tuckman's, you know, forming, storming, norming and performing model, that one? Yes, I have. I haven't done yet. I've heard of it, but not gone deep into it. That's essentially the, the stages that a group go through as they mm. sort of bond and, and get together to get to this, you know, utopia of like a high-performing team. Mm. And one of the characteristics of a high-performing team is positive conflict, is the yeah. fact that we can debate, we can debate ideas and issues rather than people and personalities. Mm. And if you think back, to, if you look at his, his model in terms of, you know, the, I guess, the academic ap application of it, we go through these stages in a nice linear fashion, but in actual mm -hmm. fact, if you've got a team of eight people, they're all going to take different times to come to that stage mm -hmm. of performing. Mm -hmm. As a leader and or as a small business owner, our ability to be able to really sort of take that helicopter view and kind of go, what's this person doing over here and what do I need to do to help make them feel included, to give them more trust and power to bring them along versus just going, you know, they're not pulling their weight and they're not, they're not bonding with everybody else. So it's obviously their problem. Mm, that's that's a really great point about the importance of looking at individuals 
and not assuming a one-size-fits-all approach or I wrote a policy and we're all good, um, which is, you know, I've got all the policies, cool, what are you doing with them? Um, is, and, and I talk a lot about curiosity and being more curious with our teams because I just think we're really bad sometimes at making assumptions, jumping to conclusions, thinking that we know what they're th- feeling or thinking. And I think we all need to be more curious every day as leaders because when we do that, we will listen better. We will try to better understand where each individual's at. But I think having, especially in small business, because you can, having that individual approach, you don't have a thousand people, you've got 20, you know, so you can understand where each individual's at to help them to, you know, map a path for them to come to that. And I think that we're not always really good at that. It's true. But in defence of small business owners, as well, yeah. we've got a few things run. going on. <laughs> They're bloody busy. Yeah, we know that one of the biggest killers of things like creativity is capacity. Mm. And so often, I'm so busy working in the business that I can't necessarily take that helicopter or that dance floor view or kind of you know whatever analogy you want to use. But yeah, I can kind of circle back to something that you just said there around you know getting curious and making those assumptions. I can't remember the name of the author who said, um, "Get curious, not furious." Oh, I don't know, but I'll, I'm going to borrow that. I'm going to find who they were. <laughs> um, might have been Matt Lieberman. It might have been David Rock or something like that. But I thought that that's a really good way of framing, you know, because we do, we get mad as individuals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you actually realise that you are actually furious or actually getting mad with somebody, like, going, hang on, get curious. That's interesting. Where is that coming from? Why am I feeling this way? And how could I frame this differently? Because we always assume bad, and we often assume bad intent in other people when we see their behaviour but we never assume bad intent in ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's we very are, true. Yeah, I judge you on your behaviour, but I judge me on my intention to behave. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because I'm always, you know, saying have a curious conversation because what you think is going on is not what's going on, but flip that around and we need to be more curious about our own reactions. Yeah, and Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting reframe on that. And I think... You know, when we're talking about creating workplaces where people feel like they belong, where there is inclusivity for everyone in the workplace. And I think it's really interesting because we talk a lot about certain cohorts, certain groups. Last year, I was chatting to a neurodiversity, neurodivergence expert. And, you know, so she's really focusing on on those groups. But everyone in your workplace should feel like they equally belong because when they do, they, like you mentioned earlier, they show up and they be their best selves. Their performance is going to be higher happier they're more motivated that all the flow on effects we always talk about in hr but it's you, unless you are look, checking your own reactions and talking to individuals and underst- really understanding individuals i think is where it comes down to you're not going to get to that utopia that you talk about mm, yeah do you is there a particular challenge or set of challenges you see businesses face when it comes to this is it, is it that they're sticking their head in the sand and not paying enough attention? Is it that their intention's good but their actions aren't? Like, what do you see as common sort of challenges with the businesses you work with? Um, so the first thing that I will say is that it's getting better across yeah. the board. Yeah. I've been a leadership facilitator for 14 years now running my own business, um, micro business, I guess you call me. And I'm dealing, you know, I'm probably doing on a 100, 120, 130 training sessions a year, maybe whether they be half day or whole day. 
So if you multiply that by 12, that's the amount of, that's the amount of leaders I'm seeing across mm -hmm. my house every year. And there is absolutely a shift in terms of people wanting to be better leaders and actually workplaces generally getting better. Now, certain industries are not getting there as quick as other industries. And yeah. there's some cultural and organizational and also perception barriers for that, but you know, maybe they will. Um, it still comes back to the basics though of being able to have good conversation skills and be able to have a good honest conversation with my teams and also with my one-up manager and feel like that we listen to each other, that we respect each other, but also that we actually know each other. Now where the inclusion part gets tricky uh, for some people is that because there's been such a focus on diversity and inclusion efforts, I'll say for the last 25 years, but really it's ramped up in the last sort of five to seven. Agree. Yeah. There's a lot of new language that's out there. I mean, there's words that I've had to learn that I didn't even know until I started. <laughs> and it's made me insufferable at, or more insufferable at dinner parties than I used to be. But <laughs> thank you. Um, I think what's happening is that in the race or in the, in the journey to inclusion, there's a whole bunch of language. There's a whole bunch of people coming through that are very confident in who they are. And some people are feeling a little left behind, potentially a little bit threatened, but also just not knowing how to go forward. Mm. And so, and I was, was my uni supervisor who, she's, a, uh, she's what's called an intersectionality expert. And intersectionality being, you know, this broad, this broad sense that we need to consider the whole of ourselves in terms of our multiple selves uh, in, in, in a, from an organizational perspective and from mm. an individual perspective. And she talks about, and we talk about the fact that a lot of organizations just want a bit of a tip and flick. Yeah. Put a policy together, do a half day's training for diversity and boom, we're done. Mm -hmm. I can come into your company and do a half day training course and people will have much better feedback in skills. But a half day course on diversity is going to just create a whole bunch of questions because with diversity and inclusion, what we're actually doing is we're getting to the sense of people's core identity. Mm. I start to really bring my whole self to work in terms of, you know, my background, my age, my social status, my class, you know, my trauma, my backgrounds, all the stuff that's going on for me in my family, sexuality, all that kind of stuff. You know, people have got their own wheelbarrow to push outside of the workplace. And back in the day, it was just like you leave your private life at home, mm. to work, come in the door, you just forget about it. Yeah. It's not going to cut it in 2023. No. And if you've got any young people in your workplace, you'll know that by now because they will quite openly let you know what they expect from work. And it is that work is part of their life and life is part of their work. And that's their approach. It's interesting that what everything always comes back to is communication and the ability to listen, have conversations, <laughs> communicate. Like it's, it's, but it always fundamentally comes back to that piece and it is a piece that the reason that there's so much training available and you know you and I are coaches and consultants in this space is because people find it hard and I really like that you pointed out to the language because it, it there is new language and I think some people do find that just they just don't know and they don't they want to be very respectful and they want to say the right things and they get worried that they're going to say the wrong things as well I think a bit but fundamentally folks it all comes back to your communication which
Thanks for joining us on this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a rating, comment and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to recommend us to a friend. We also love hearing suggestions for topics or guest speakers that you would love to hear from. The best way to reach us to give us those suggestions is over on our Facebook page. Simply head to Facebook and search Grow Your Influence. See you there.